Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 303, and I had a conversation with A. Laura Brody. She is a customer, a sculptor, the founder of Opulent Mobility, which, by the way, is having their annual call for artists. So she talks about that here on the show. She's a curator, educator, and arts activist. Some call her a visionary. I call her cousin. She just married my cousin David, and so now she's officially my cousin as well. It's very exciting. Uh, During this episode, you might hear a little casual tap dancing. That is her dog, Lucy. So (laughs) if you hear that, that's what that sound is. Anyway, I had a really good time uh, talking with Laura and learning stuff about her I didn't know before, which is always fun. Uh, You think you know a person over the years, and they still surprise you. I'm excited for you to learn about her and to love her like I love her. Okay, usual stuff. Social media for Hey Human Podcast can be found on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, You can find my personal social media, Susan Ruthism, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Email me, Susan at HeyHumanPodcast.com. On HeyHumanPodcast.com, you'll find a links page. Every episode gets its own links section, and you will find out more about my guests and what we talked about and that kind of thing. There's also a store on HeyHumanPodcast.com, and you can check out all the swag and delicious things on there. And you can also, on Hey Human Podcast, find the contribute button, and that helps support and keep it ad-free. So I appreciate that. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts is another great way to support the show. Super appreciate it. Helps with the algorithms. Does all the good things, all the good work. If you want to know more about me and other stuff I do aside from the podcast, go to SusanRuth.com. You will find my art and music and a mailing list and interviews with me, things like that. And if you want to check out my music, you'll find my album All I Ever Wanted Was Everything in all the places you can get music for download. Check out my YouTube channel, Official Susan Ruth, and there's a bunch of videos up there and... I will do my best to keep making sure new content gets uploaded to that as well. I wanted to tell you about a couple shows I watched this week that I really enjoyed. Upload. It was on Amazon Prime, I believe. Yes, that's correct. And I really thought it was fun. It's one part mystery, one part rom-com, one part sci-fi. I really enjoyed it. It was was good. I actually binge-watched two seasons I don't know where the time went. I got sucked in and I loved it. There's a couple of really fun surprises in that show. So I, I think you'll enjoy if you're into that kind of thing. And I also watched The Adam Project. There's a lot of love and hate for this movie that is starring Ryan Reynolds and, uh, and a bunch of other people as well that did a fantastic job. The kid on the show is fantastic. I enjoyed it. I loved it. Uh, I cried even. So <laughs> if that says anything... I think people take movies like this way too seriously, and I I don't know what they're expecting. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of love, and I'm glad because (laughs) it really is. It's a good one, and it goes by fast. It's a pretty short movie, all in all. Um, So, yeah, those are my reviews. And, again, ad-free podcast, so I'm not being paid to tell you that I think something is great. If I say it, it means I really mean it. And, uh, yeah, 
It is great. Okay, enough of all that. Let's get into this conversation with my cousin, Laura. And thank you for listening. And be well and be kind and stay safe. And here we go. Laura Brody, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you so much for doing this. We've been talking about it for, I don't know, a while. A really long time, and <laughs> you always have felt like family to me, but now you are officially family, so welcome to the family. Congratulations on your recent wedding to my cousin. Thank you. It was actually really fun. We were just talking about how nice and simple and oh. to the point it was, and also a good party. Yeah, it was great, and it was outdoors, Yes, which was also great, and people were wearing masks. Yes. Also, which was impressive. And uh, yeah. Super important to me, honestly. I mean, the last thing you want is something like that. It's a super spreader event. Yeah, it'd be a real bummer if somebody came to your wedding and then dropped in. And yeah, that, that'll be sad and bad. Because there were all sorts of age groups there. And mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it was really fun. Yay. And it was at, we'll give a plug, it was at Wing Walker Brewery. Thank you. Yes, yeah. that is that the is family my... Family business. Yes, the family business. And yeah, it was really nice just to have that. Yeah. Great time. Great, great time, great space. Yay. All right, let's get in to you. Okay. <laughs> so, Laura, where are you from originally? Fairbanks, Alaska is where I was born. I had no idea. Oh. This is going to be fun. Because okay. as much as I know you, I know there's lots I don't know. So, how yeah. long did you stay in Alaska? How long was your family there? Well, I was born there, and then we moved around a lot, and then went back when I was in the latter part of grade school, and then went through there through my first two years of, yeah, my first year and a half, really, of undergrad. Moved around because of military or work or um, what was uh, the... Out-of-work art professor. Oh. <laughs> so apparently it's... Mom art or dad. Prof- Yeah, art, that was my dad. Okay. Um, so art professor brat, I guess, yeah. sort of the, a similar idea. But um, when you're not tenured, that becomes a whole thing. So trying to find a place to hop around to and some of the places stuck and some of them really didn't. Yeah, I I never really thought about that, that teachers also move around the way military have to move around. It's even more so now, especially since it's like all adjunct all the time. Yeah, that is interesting as well. I noticed that there's adjunct professorship is the thing. Is the thing. Is that so they don't have to pay them probably as much? They don't have to give them the benefits at the end? That sucks. It does. It does. It's really rare now that you can find anything that's a tenured position. But it also means that if you're trying to chase that, it's a drag of a lifestyle. And so in a lot of ways, he was fortunate that he was able to go back there because that was where he was doing assistant teaching and then was able to go back and then eventually retired from there and was the dean for a brief time. Oh. Yep. Mom artistic? She knits. (laughs) No. (laughs) Okay. And that's just never been her skill. It's been a lot of different things. So, um... More recently, she was doing counseling and social work. So it's like, in some ways, polar opposites. Mm-hmm. They met in Alaska. Okay. Um, I think he was teaching her. Oh, yes. Yeah. Saucy. Oh, I know. <laughs> scandal. Um, maybe. Um, but at the time, I'm, my dad had been married before. My birth mother died when I was like two and a half weeks old, something like that. And um, so at about... One and a half is when he married mom. And stepmother. Yeah. But mom. Yeah. Because the only mother you ever knew. Yes. Do you have any identity with your birth mother that 
now that you're an adult and can go back and find things and know more things? I, yeah, more now. I mean, it was actually... It was tricky for a while growing up because I um, always had a really difficult relationship with my family. Um, and for a long time, I didn't want to know too much about my birth mother because there was a real issue, especially with my mom, that that was not something she wanted. She wanted to talk about it mostly when she was mad at my father about how, you know, how he wasn't doing things well. But um, I got information about her. Um, I got her diaries and I got photo albums. And I just didn't want to know for a while because it just seemed like it was so fraught and it was a problem that, you know. What did she pass from? A heart disease. Okay. And her name? Her name was Anne. Anne. Mm -hmm. Okay. Anne Sullivan. Hi, Anne. Hi. (laughs) Wherever you are. Yeah. Siblings? Yes. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. All right. I'm always curious about family dynamics when when your birth mother has passed, Mm -hmm. you have a stepmother, and again, as you said, fraught Mm -hmm. in places. Did you feel isolated from your siblings at all, as if you weren't quite... I was in? the caretaker of them. Oh, okay. So that was a very specific thing. So it was both, there was definitely some separation, definitely in terms of how I was treated, but also that I felt really protective of them mm. for a very long time. Yeah. And yeah, still sometimes. What did you study in grad school? I studied costume design. Um, so that was what I really went into when I first realized that that was a job. I'm like, that. That's what I want to do. What drew you to costuming, to, to have that be your major? Was that something you'd always done as a kid? It was actually really interesting. One of the first reasons I got interested into that, um, and the whole idea of it, that clothing could affect the way people thought about you. And that was junior high. So we, for quite a long time, didn't have a bunch of money. And... Um, I was wearing cast-offs from my grandmother's friend's daughter. So a lot of stuff that was definitely not what anyone was wearing at Fairbanks. That I can tell you that. A little out of date, and but it was just whatever clothes were there. Sure. Did kids make fun of you for the outfits? Yeah, absolutely. It, that wasn't really important to me because we had moved around so much that it was really hard for me to feel like it was part of anything. So mm-hmm. it was like not being part of it was K. <laughs> this is just what happens. But then um, somebody who did become a friend of mine um, ended up going into foster care. And whatever had happened with her, her parents, um, her foster parents um, fed her pretty well. <laughs> And her parents from before um, had clothed her very well. So after she was getting fed properly, she couldn't fit into anything she had. So she had all these fancy clothes and she gave them to me. And all of a sudden people started talking to me and I did not get it at all. I'm like, what is going on? I don't understand. But once I realized and she told me afterwards, because she was very proud that that helped make me more popular. I'm like, okay, I can do something. I can make people think things based on how I am dressed and what I do. And I started playing with it. And I started learning more about it. And at least for me, the thing was always more about the sociology and the history of it. I was just fascinated. 
self-taught then or did you seek out someone to teach you? Um, I was pretty self-taught. Um, I went and did a sewing class in high school, which was a terrible choice. Oh. It was just a terrible, <laughs> terrible thing. But I ended up costuming a whole show and I got a C in the class because I wasn't, you know, making a prom dress or something. I wasn't doing a great job at sewing. I was trying to costume a show. Why <laughs> is costuming different than your everyday clothing or creation? It doesn't necessarily have to be, mm -hmm. but um, for that different purposes, I mean, you're trying to tell a story and you're trying to tell a, a silhouette. So that for me was much more interesting than trying to have something that was just making, I don't know, a single event mm -hmm. look fancy. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I don't know how much people, well, maybe they do now because I know obviously it's an Oscar level thing yeah. that costuming is, but how much the costumers work with television and film. Yeah. You work in, yeah, in such things. And that how much it goes into the scenery and how, and the story and the character. Like I think of uh, Queen's Gambit as a great example. Oh, that's an amazing one, yeah. How much her costuming was so well thought out, how her she mirrored chess the chess games that she was playing and uh, it was, was so was, well thought out the color was, was amazing the outline the silhouette was gorgeous uh, it was also it, it was such a big part of the story that she wasn't you know she came from almost nothing and she wasn't allowed to dress nicely and when she could she was like i am going to be the fanciest thing in the room and yeah. she was she was the fanciest um, most fashionable out of all of these, we're, I don't know, room full of dingy guys. Yeah. <laughs> As you came out of college and you started realizing the world at large needed to be costumed. Yes. That there were so many opportunities for that. And you were already doing that to your own stuff, I'm yes. sure. Kind of like uh, Andy from uh, Pretty in Pink. <laughs> right? Well, I was doing less stuff for me, but I was always dressing other things. Sure. And I was... I also was really big on like creating stuff out of things around. I was great on repurposing and have been doing that for many, many, many Ahead years. Ahead of your time. Well, it just was super important to me. But also that was the materials I had, you know, that's what you had around. And I grew up around people who really liked to repurpose because in Alaska, it was sort of a point of pride. You made things out of what was there, hmm. you mm -hmm. know. And sometimes because you couldn't get out because it was 60 below. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Did you set your sights on the film and television industry or no. was that a long process to get there? That was a process to get there. I mean, I started doing, I did a bit of it. Um, I did some stuff for uh, PBS, living and working in space. <laughs> um, I, d I did some stuff. When I first came out of undergrad, though, um, I just started mostly with theater. I ended up and worked for a year over at the Juilliard School in New York and looked at it and went, okay, I can do this. I don't have to have a master's, but everyone telling me I don't have to have one has one. <laughs> and they're able to teach, and I might be able, wanting to teach someday, I might want to do that. Um, but also, it was terrible money, like, miserable. And, I mean, at the time, New York wasn't, you know, it was less expensive than it is now, but it certainly wasn't cheap. And I'm like, okay, this is dumb. I might need to go back to school. And I was able to go back, worked for a while, and earned up a bit, and went to CalArts 
and I ended up getting a fellowship there, which was really nice, because otherwise I could not have afforded that. That was dumb expensive, and it's even more dumb expensive now. But when I first visited it, it was, it was funny. I mean, and this big, ridiculous sprawl of a place with just everything going on all at once. And I remember seeing an enormous inflatable chicken on one side of something with like a sign saying shows at one and three. I'm like, I could go here. <laughs> I think this might be my place. Plot twist, the chicken was the dean of the school. <laughs> well, <laughs> in theory. <laughs> but... No, it was great, and I actually ended up getting to work with people, a lot of dance work, mm. a lot of more esoteric performance art type work, and more artwork. But I'd also done sort of performance art things in undergrad, so mm. that was really, that kind of artiness really appealed to me. How were you developing your personal style then? Uh, I This is under the assumption that as a... As a costumer, mm -hmm. just like for me, a songwriter, like I can tell who's written the song. There's a there's a fingerprint yeah. in it. And how did you come to find what your fingerprint would be in your work, other than the repurposing, the visually? Um, what I found specifically is that I was a natural at draping at coming to creating things on a body, on a form, and sculpting things. Oh, interesting. And different materials. And that just really, it was, it really spoke to me. And that's something that's not a thing for people usually? Or no, just, okay. not necessarily, but also it, it was just, it came really naturally and simply to me. And it, I skipped ahead and didn't do any of the basic stuff and went right to bias draping. <laughs> I'm like, okay, this sounds awesome. That's what I want to do. You found your place. Yeah, uh, but finding that and also finding unusual materials. So I pretty much went, instead of doing a more assistant design design route, I ended up doing specialty costume for quite a long time. And for everything, like Disney on Ice and for... Um, commercials of all kinds and opera stuff and any goofy ass theater thing and a lot of odd performance art. I'm sure Disney on Ice would be a master class because of the flexibility of the humans that and the outfits that have to go with that. Yeah. That is absolutely but almost all of the more specialty stuff I did, the movement based stuff, I was always really interested in how things work with the human form, no matter what the human form is shaped like. Especially the things for opera. So you get everything from the dancers in the chorus to the opera singers of great size. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my first sixty inch waist was a revelation. But mostly after anything it's just okay, I need more or less material. I'm glad that slowly and surely the, well, I'm glad that it is at all now that the designers are realizing that there are so many body shapes. Yeah. It isn't just runways of size two and sample sizes. Yeah. Because it really cut, it's, there's such works of art. There's so much beautiful things. And as you said earlier, people who feel beautiful by what they're wearing, you know, they approach the world differently and the world approaches them differently. And to X out a whole, Huge swath of human. It just seems horribly wrong. It's super wrong. And that innately... And it's pointless because yeah. you're... 
Come on, you yeah. you have. I know such... it's elitist as well, which I get that, but you know, yeah. I understand why they're doing it. But it's, it... It, 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 there are a whole bunch of ists. Yeah, in there. yeah. <laughs> but um, no, you, that there are so many beautiful bodies and so many beautiful shapes, and that was also something that appealed to me less and less. I tried to do some fashion things. It was not very interesting. I didn't like. It was not as intriguing to me. The storytelling wasn't as good. And maybe I also wasn't finding some of the people that I would have liked to work with. But I I was working in a bunch of different places and would get really frustrated with different hierarchies and different organizations and like but kept trying to find like better places to learn and new places to work with where I would get I don't know, get the better stories. I think it was, it took me a while to realize what I needed to do was start making my own. Was that scary, getting out there and trying to... That was both awesome and terrifying. Yeah. (laughs) But I've spent a lot of time, and I'm kind of a rip the band-aid off person with a lot of things, sometimes to my own detriment. Finally, let's leap into, okay. (laughs) But fashion is getting so much more adventurous and interesting. And there always were some people, but they were very select. Yeah. So those were the people I was interested in, you know. Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of people wanted to do film. I only wanted to do, say, Peter, like Peter Greenaway things. <laughs> you know, I wasn't, I didn't care about, and still don't care as much about what, who is in the thing, you know, or about the name quality, but it'd be the more interesting stuff. So, you know. More recently, I've been doing things like sight gags for kids' sitcoms, which is hilarious and ridiculous and like dueling chicken mascots. That's awesome. But that's more more my kind of style if it's not making my own designs. Yeah. You know, because that, that's just fun stuff. Well, let's talk about that process. You go in with a director or is it the writers and directors, the cinema? Who do you work with when you're trying to suss out what the costuming is going to look like? What does that look like for you? How does that Um, process happen? Totally depends on what kind of production I'm working on. Mm -hmm. Like what that is for film versus what that is for dance versus what that is for theater. And it's widely varied. But um, mostly it's about communication first with the director for me and then figuring out how that works with the organization because that's its own set of other stuff Mm -hmm. and then coming up with sketches and ideas and a lot of research and then developing it and with some people I have a lot of free reign and some people I do not so it depends yeah are there any particular movies when you think about maybe the last 20, 30 years, are there any movies that come to mind of the, the costuming just for you personally blew you away? Hmm. Wow. Because I, I haven't been seeing a lot of movies lately. That's like, really you know, why Brett, that's what like, I said, 20 or 30 you've years. Give, you've given me a room, but um, like, look, the, I know this was a while ago but the cook the thief his wife and her lover with some of the most beautiful color range that i have seen in a long time that was just gorgeous and some pretty astonishing shapes mm. you're like wow brazil <laughs> was glorious mm-hmm. really well done um you know sometimes it'll be really simple stuff like 
being John Malkovich was a brilliant piece of design, not because it was interesting so much in terms of the costumes, but the color that they did and just that subtlety was very nicely done. I love that movie. Yeah, I mean, I really liked, oh, um, Russian Doll more recently yeah. and Queen's Gambit. Um, Design-wise, those are really nicely done. You know, that was, they're striking and very individual. Everyone had their own specific silhouette and character and color. Really nice. There's a fantasy element that I see in your, when I'm talking oh, about yeah. those finger fingerprints, that when I look at your stuff, even even the stuff that's more generalized, I yeah. still see that fantasy element. Is that definitely your lean-to? Yeah, I have a lot of magical realism, is what they call. Yeah. Um, but in a lot of my own designs and artwork, there's a lot more of the, I don't know, creating your own fantasy reality. Mm. I remember being young, my mother used to make a lot of our clothes and her, uh, the fabric store legs, that's what we called it. Our legs would, she'd be in there for hours and our legs would eventually give out and we'd just sit on the floor grumpy. <laughs> She was oh, pouring no. over Vogue and, you know, McCall's and yeah. all that stuff. But uh, she would make some really cool stuff. But it's hers were much more uh, not run of the mill. Because she obviously she had some fun with things, but but she wasn't being super fantastical. I think for her, textures and patterns were the thing. Yeah, I think that was her deal. Textures are always a big deal for me. Look, I did a lot of work with smaller theaters that were just much more subtle, you know. But yeah, they're they're much less my thing than, you know, my version of The Seven Deadly Sins. <laughs> yeah, which that, that when, we, when I came over, the, uh, what is it, a bustier, right? It's, yes, yeah, it's, it's an open bus bustier that's made out of a bunch of different leather jackets and um, pieced together with zipper teeth. Um, sort of outlining each of the seams. With a peekaboo breast. Yes. Which is so cool. I would wear that. Nice. <laughs> we, we'll have to set something That's up so for cool. you. <laughs> I love it. I did use it in uh, most recently in the Firebird, which is uh, there's a an adaptive dance troupe that I work with. It works with different um, dancers with and without disabilities. And that was for the Firebird. Nice. Yeah. What got you into that? Because that became a big focus for you. Oh, yeah. This has been a huge one. Um, it started a while back just as an idea. Um, so a former boyfriend had a stroke. And I got a lot more intimately acquainted with the devices that people use to help them around. You know, I was pretty impressed because I really have kind of an engineer mind. But my artist, I was like, really? They do not have to look like that. Nothing has to only look like crappy linoleum with like those rubber hand grips. There's no reason it has to. So why? Did You're talking about the apparatuses that help. All like, the oh, apparatus, yeah. the um, the arm things, and the, the, the crutches, the, crutch, yeah. the canes, the walkers, a lot of the the basic wheelchairs. Uh, some of it I get in terms of function, but they really don't have to look like that. So yeah, it's just pretty like, gross. Very cute. Very blah. Okay. And very cold. Cold, yeah. It's a Clinical good word. and mm -hmm. medical-based. And they're personal, which seemed really strange to me because this is personal. And you it's know. something that you have to be intimate with for the rest of your life in many cases. Or even if it's only for a short time. I mean, if you're going to decorate a cast, why would you not decorate a cane? That's a good point. And so for me, it was like, okay, this, something's wrong here. I don't know what it is. But it took a while, and, and actually, 
a breakup <laughs> and a really, really big series of changes in my own life, like making a bunch of changes and coming back to the idea and saying, oh, good friend of mine had an extra wheelchair and he let me use it. So thank you, Peter Sobey. That was awesome. And I did it up like an Edwardian throne. And it, right here, although it was looking a little different it's when so I cool. first did it. We'll put pictures yeah. of it on the social media so people can see it. Cool. But when I first did it, I had no idea because he was quadriplegic. I didn't know what balance he needed in that or that he needed because it's different for every person, of course. But I put too much padding in the back and I dressed him up and I dressed the chair up and brought him out for an event and he almost fell off the chair. And so he was luckily really good about it. I had friends. We helped. It was okay. He brought his own chair. He didn't have to sit in it for a long time. I'm like, I'm sorry. But I just started looking at this going, okay, I need to know more. I, I don't, I'm not qualified to do things for medical licensing, but I can't be the only one who's thought about this. And I started researching and like no one, there were actually some really interesting designs out there that had been patented and they were not on the market at all. Okay, something else is happening. And then I tried to show my pieces at a couple of places and then started looking around at galleries and almost none of them were wheelchair accessible. I'm like, okay. The galleries weren't. Yep, yeah. not even kind of. Yeah. So older buildings here frequently are not in Los Angeles. Yeah. But I'm looking around like, there are a lot of questions. I have a lot more questions and I have more answers. And I got really interested and really stubborn and started asking around. I'm like, okay, well, I can't be the only one thinking about it. So I started a show. <laughs> thinking, how hard can it be? Somebody else is interested. I'll ask other artists. We'll put on a show. Yeah. I've done theater shows. It'll be great. And that's how Opulent Mobility was That's born. how Opulent Mobility started. And it was this tiny little thing, but I had to bug this gallery owner in Ventura for like a year. <laughs> you know, like, who's this chick? I don't know. But he had one of the only places I'd seen that was actually wheelchair accessible fully. I'm like, this is dumb and rare and I shouldn't have to look that hard. So explain what people, for, for people listening, what Opulent Mobility does, what its purpose and how it's integrated it, into the community. Okay, it is a group exhibit, a group art exhibit that asks people to reimagine disability as opulent and powerful. And as it started, I was kind of general, but as it's grown, and it's grown quite a bit, I mean, it's now got people from all over the world putting work in there, I didn't specify what type of disability or what type of focus that people should put into the show, um, just that they make it opulent and powerful. And so we've had work that was about invisible disabilities and mental health issues and sight issues and hearing and um, migraines and dyslexia and just about anything you can possibly imagine. But it's giving a lot of artists in the disability sphere a more of a fine arts way to show their work because there are a lot of disability art shows that are kind of Patronizing is the kindest word I could use. It's like, oh, look what those nice people can do. 
no, that's not what I want. And I wasn't trying to do only by and for academic disability art, because there's a real place for that. There's also a lot of really angry disability art, which I get. Like, you have every right. Um, our culture is so skewed against it, and it's such a horrible drag. But I was trying to come up with something so that we could talk about this in general, with abled and disabled people talking about it. And that's not necessarily the best approach. <laughs> so coming up with something opulent, powerful, and beautiful. You know, Lovely. and beauty in all the uh, ways you can define it. <laughs> but you could come with something that really opens up conversations. And it has. It's been so cool. I, I had no idea when I got started with this that this would grow like that. But it has its own weight, its own gravity, you know. And it's developed things because it has requirements. <laughs> this show has requirements. How many people now uh, apply for the show? Oh gosh, the last one we had seventy-five people. Oh my gosh. applied to it, Incredible. and it was actually a much smaller group of people who got into it. Um, this past couple of ones, I uh, first couple, first one, and then this past couple of ones, I didn't have any fee for getting involved. And what happens when the you do that is that you get a lot of things you have to rule out like yeah. so many <laughs> sure but i didn't want to because things have just been such a nightmare with covid yeah you know uh, afterwards i might put in a small fee just because that means i don't have to filter quite so many things of out course. and it is also a lot of work and i get some sponsorship but not very much mm -hmm. and so i need to get better at fundraising is what well <laughs> and you have one coming up right when's the next opulent mobility the next one's going to be in october going to be working at antelope valley college and their gallery there and we hope hope to be working with a local museum out there um because we're trying at least i'm trying every time i put it out to find ways to make it more accessible to a wider audience and we'd like to make it more accessible for a neurodivergent audience. Mm. And there's a museum out there that has been doing that. So I would like to work with them. So sure. That's great. Moa Cedar, <clears throat> if you're hearing this, please, that'd be awesome. What, uh, where can people find the information to sign up or to submit? They can find that at opulentmobility.com. And that the uh, submissions open at the end of March slash beginning of April. So. Great. Yes. Perfect. And uh, let's talk about this other project you're taking on. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> We've got a couple. But the most recently, I've just signed up for um, a program out of Arts for LA called Activate LA. And it's like a crash course in arts advocacy, which is, should be really cool. What I've been wanting to do, and I just started, was putting together workshops so that people... Um, this one was over at Cal State LA in their kinesthesiology department about decorating and personalizing wheelchairs and walkers and canes for the clients. And that just say, like, okay, let's talk to the students and the clients because it's super important that the people who are using the devices have a say in this. Sure. <laughs> but also that the more the more accessible and fun you make this kind of activity the more hands-on kind of you know it's it 
it's a really good point to start talking about disability and also to aging and about how we can make this Mm. a part of our lives rather than something you overlook. Mm-hmm. I just recently did a cane commission for a friend of a friend of mine, and my friend had asked me to do it for her friend because her friend would was almost getting knocked over in the street because people overlook and like in ignore people with devices all the time. I'm like, well, you're not going to do it when it's candy striped when they attach parasol, are you? <laughs> <laughs> so. The idea, and it's made such an impact to do just little pieces like that. That I look, if we can do workshops in a bunch of different places, this would be really super great. It's also a nice big fu to people that think that those types of people shouldn't be seen or heard from or or should die. (laughs) Thank you, COVID. Or should die. Exactly. And that was part of me putting this out. It's like, look, there are more and more people, especially saying that anybody who doesn't live up to a health standard should be disposable. And that is totally not acceptable. I'm sorry. Mm. I guess at any moment that is any one of us. Absolutely. Nobody knows. You don't know. And and truthfully, it's been one of the things that's been kind of, that's such a, I won't see it, I won't look at it <laughs> kind of part of our culture. But yeah. the disability, you're lucky to get to it. Because if you are lucky to get old enough and to make it through aging and dis, you know whatever injuries or sickness, you are going to be disabled. It's not a question. It's well, a when. It also <laughs> creates a situation like my dad, for example, has severe scoliosis. Huh. And he fights us. We try to get him to use any kind of device, a cane or anything. Yeah, I know, I but know. But his, you know, the virility of his... His, you know, his you know, manhood. Yeah, his yeah, wonder years and things. And I think he, the optics for him... He's got to get through that immortality desire, that young, young forever desire that yeah. is in so many of us. It is. But it's to his detriment because he could slip and fall. And it's. And sometimes, actually, a fabulous cane top makes a big difference. Yeah. I mean, I have seen people who are like, I'm not going out with this thing. You jazz it up with some bedazzling. Yeah. And they're like, I'm going to show this off to the world. Yeah. It, it makes things more social and it makes it, it's, it's just a human nature thing. I mean, yeah. we were decorating cave walls that we, no one had to do it <laughs> technically. Yeah. You know, you didn't have to do it to eat, but you wouldn't do it if it wasn't important yeah. to some degree. Yeah. This is an important part of our being. We decorate ourselves. We make the environments around us you know, as much as we can to our nature mm-hmm. and to what we feel is wonderful. Yeah. Why would you not have that for everything around you? And why would you not want to make every part of your life and as why, amazing and every time in your life yeah. as amazing as possible? And any everybody around you as well. Yeah. Why would you not look at it like everyone deserves to feel beautiful and yeah. empowered? And, and glorious. I would, When I was younger, I did... Uh, fine art photography modeling for yeah Neat. and you know you get pretty naked yep. and <laughs> that'll do it and you're with a lot of other models and 
that to me, I, I found a journal that I had written back then when I was doing it and how nervous I was to do it in the beginning. And then it was, it was a, a very fine, Dr. David Tepica, a very fine photographer and a, he's also a surgeon. He's got that MFA and MD thing going on. Um, anyway, and and his work, his photography work hangs all over the world. He's, Neat. you know, and but I was nervous to do this thing you know, in my early 20s, when you hate your body, even if it's perfect, which mine was definitely not, but I'm just saying, you, you know, are still gloriously lovely. But I'm sorry. Mean, but, you know what, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, I don't know that there's a human being, man or woman alive, that wouldn't look at some body part and go, mm, God, I want to change that or whatever. Yeah. So here I am in this room full of people, all, you know, men and women that were naked and these people, these naked people all around me. And, and I realized in that moment, it was so empowering. I was like, oh my God. And they were all different shapes and sizes. And I thought, wow, everyone is so beautiful. Yeah. It was so eye-opening. Now, did it take away all of my stuff? No, of course not. But it was really a beautiful moment. It didn't necessarily solve all the voices in my head, but it certainly created an idea. It planted a seed of how beautiful everyone is, regardless. That got reaffirmed when I went to my first spa and the Korean oh, yeah. spa and all these women, all different shapes, all different kinds of hair, all different tattoo, not tattoo, pierced, not pierced, big, huge breasts, little tiny breasts, you know, every color of the rainbow, everything. And it was, it's glorious. Yeah. It's a glorious reminder of how beautiful we are. Isn't it? I actually had some of mine, strangely enough, was when uh, my former partner um, was working in vintage erotica and I was helping sell stuff. But there's okay. nothing like that that will show you that all bodies are beautiful and that somebody wants them for exactly what they are. Let me tell you, somebody, anything you have, what or what, I don't know. There's someone out there who wants jiggly elbows. Yeah. There was some, there's probably a magazine or at least there's a blog somewhere sure. for that. Yeah. Every part point. of us, some, it's not only beautiful, but desirable. Yeah. Vintage porn. Yep. I forgot about that. <laughs> yes. Let's my just my experience is vast and strange. Okay. <laughs> I, I would be remiss to not cover that just a hair. Okay. No, no pun intended. What Ta-da! <laughs> um, it, it was business called Eros Archives. And um, yes, I've spent a lot more time sorting photos in magazines and writing descriptions of things for catalogs and for Etsy and, and sometimes for um, magazines and whatnot. You know, did bunch of odd rating of things. What do you notice between porn today and the porn of yesteryear that is different and same? It's interesting. I mean, because with all of it, it's <laughs> it's totally a fantasy. Like, I think most people don't seem to recognize that that is. And it's like, you do understand that that's posed, right? And there are other people in the corner, like... <laughs> trying to catch a shot underneath somebody's dripping armpit <laughs> and it, that that will actually completely ruin any of the sense of magic that you've got going on and just imagine the smell we're just saying <laughs> of the vintage yeah, yeah of, been, of any of that yeah of not any of the bathing practices maybe back then back but, in the olden days but all but even now um but with most of it um 
after a while, you could certainly tell era just based on things like, you know, eyeliner style and stockings. Mm. Um, but right now, there's a lot more of the idea, I think, that people are trying to get, I don't know, as raunchy as, as humanly possible, but aren't still really realizing they're dealing with humans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, because it's just like, guys, I mean, half the time, um, the a lot of the older shots are just a lot more of human bodies being real human bodies. Mm-hmm. And while you've got some of that now, you've got an awful lot of people who are like, they haven't worn socks for a while, so they don't have creases on their ankles. They haven't worn their underwear, so there are no creases on the sides. You know, like, it's so posed. It's so Ken, set up. Ken doll, Barbie doll. Yeah. yeah. But that it's, is a good point. I didn't think about that. Because the, the, there's a, a store in Los Feliz that has all these great books of vintage photographs, and mm-hmm. one of them is vintage uh, erotica and pornography mm-hmm. and it's so cool to look at it's like the rolled up stockings and people sitting in chairs and mm-hmm. just, just kind of hanging out yeah, and just their pubic like... hair is just kind of bunching out the sides you're like hey yeah hi. it's really <laughs> it's such a different vibe <laughs> yeah it really is it, it essentially has become so much of a business not that it wasn't before yeah but it's um it's fascinating yeah it's it's become much more of that now yeah well, where are you headed? What's what's up next? Besides the opulent mobility and the arts advocacy, what where do you see things heading for you? It's going to be a combination of things. Um, more things with adaptive troops, with adaptive organizations. I'd really like to do a lot more of the workshops. Um, and really would love to grow opulent mobility so that I could travel with it when we can travel a little more safely again. Let's see how that goes. <laughs> COVID permitting. It's coming. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming again. Um, I'd also like to start putting out and have, in the process of putting out um, some online classes showing people how to make wearable art. Just because, and you know, going through the whole steps of turning from an idea into breaking it down and then making it work on a human body. Explain to, to them what, uh, explain what wearable art is. Well, I think of it as like half the things that you see on commercials are. Honestly, definitely anything you see on Drag Race, it'd be wearable art. But things that aren't necessarily um, easy costumes, you know. It's something that steps out a little outside of the body. I mean, I even call things like Ivers Van Herpen's designs more wearable art than just fashion. It's It goes outside and beyond standard costume or fashion and into a realm of... Oof. Or even like Met Gala. Met Gala, absolutely. Um, hey, a lot of the sitcom sight gags are even some mascots that you'd see. But um, that idea of you start with the human form and then expand beyond it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's both something I'm really excited by, but I also know that there are a lot of people who need that and they really want that skill, and it's a teachable skill. Yeah. But I'm not seeing a lot of people teaching it. So Interesting. Tell yeah. people how they might find you. Okay, for that one, you can find dreamsbymachine.com, which is my other site, which is me and the art and teaching. Dreamsbymachine.com. Yep. Great. Mostly said because I, wherever possible, will do things and sew them by machine and not by hand because it take, it's faster. Yeah, and you have a, you, you have a, an 
I uh, have a YouTube as well, A. Laura Brody. Yeah. The YouTube. You the YouTube. The you YouTube know. for the kids. For the kids these days. <laughs> where you're teaching people stuff. Yes, where I'm teaching that and also talking about things like opulent mobility and the artwork that I do for that. Yeah. I am, before we go, so you have a giant mermaid that you are building. Yes. Why? Okay. Um, this one is based on the fairy Melusine. Um French medieval myth, and she was, okay, she's a fairy, she took on human form, a guy comes to her and's freaked out because he's accidentally killed the king. She says, okay, everything's going to be fine, you marry me, um, I'm going to build you a nice castle and kingdom, everything's going to be good, but you've got to leave me alone on Saturday nights. And she kept his her word, and he did not, and found her in her bath with, like, cavorting with extra tails. Like, one, some of the legends say she had a single tail, like a serpent. Some of them has twin tails, like, like the Starbucks logo, for example. Um, but he didn't say anything immediately, and then finally did one day. Like, ah, oh, that's what I get for marrying a horrible monster. And she's like... You just had to. She sprouts rings, she flies away, resumes her regular shape, and he dies in obscurity. So leave people alone. Yeah. When they say so. Saturdays. You Give, know, you come got, on. You need your bath time. You need you need your boundaries. You need boundaries. It's an excellent, excellent, uh, uh, what do they call it? Um, morality tale. Yes, it is. <laughs> we need autonomy and some space. Yes. We need space. Hence we grow a wing and get the... Out. <laughs> Laura, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. It's this was so fun. It was fun. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>